a perspective of this story as I can. It's an Old Testament story of historical record that clearly illustrates and teaches about God moving his people, they at that time, and us now, into a deeper experience of himself. Just to give you a a, a thumbnail sketch, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan in full view of the enemy and the stronghold of Jericho, where the enemy held up, which lies in a great open plain. And if you want to see a reference there, it would be Joshua 3.16. From the city, especially from the vantage point of its walls, the Jordan Valley from Adam to the Dead Sea was visible. It had tremendous, uh, just tremendous visibility. And after the children of Israel had crossed the river and, and got in that great miracle, the crossing of Jordan, they were camped at Gilgal, and they did a number of things before they took possession of the promised land. And I want to just really quickly go through those things that they did so that you can get the back uh, side of this story because um, to not understand where they came from, why they came, what they were destined to do, and what really happened... Uh, you might miss the whole intent. First off, their faith put fear in the hearts of the enemies. And that I'm going to come back to, but that's chapter 5, as I mentioned, verse 1. Secondly, they stopped, but they didn't stay. Thirdly, they renewed their commitment to the covenant with God. That's chapter 5, verses 2 through 9. And then they remembered their roots... And we're coming back to the next uh, point, so I'll just leave it as is. And sixth, they worshiped the Lord. Now, um, they did all these things before they fought one battle. They did all these things before they attacked one city stronghold. And all of these things, and this is so important to note, all of these things were done in full view of the enemy. Now, these are principles that we need to follow prophetically, practically, and personally. And Christian friends, it's time to do it. Now, fifth thing I said I'd come back, the Israelites did, after crossing the Jordan, was they destroyed or they broke the manna mentality. I want to pick up the reading in Joshua 5 at verse 10. And you can follow along with me. You can read with me. You can just uh, look at the screen or whatever. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plain of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Notice in verse 11, they ate the fruit of the promised land for the first time. The next day, the manna stopped forever. They put fear in the enemy's heart. We've read a lot, and probably you've heard, of this miraculous God of ours and how all the things that he did, in the, in, as it's recorded in the book of Joshua. But experiences of God don't, in themselves, put fear into the enemy's heart. 
What does? Uh, I'll list a few things for you, Christian. Forsaking not the assembling of yourself together to worship the Lord. Together, as one body. And to hear His word. I'll tell you something else. Opening your Bible to read the word of God. Don't stop there. Then obeying it when it tells you how to do it. Opening your Bible and reading the Word of God and obeying it will tell you how to enrich your marriage, how to raise your family, how to operate your finances, how to relate to one another, how to live consistently before your God. Reading the Word of God and applying it to your life, doing what it tells you to do, puts fear in the heart of the enemy. And an obedient Christian is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. So here we are in the plains of Jericho. The enemy observed an unselfish, unified, committed people, a God-centered people. So tell me, what you eating? Tell me, what you eating? Tell me, my friend. What you eating? Back to today's topic, manna. The manna stopped the day after they started eating the produce of the promised land. Why is this significant? Let me talk to you about that. First, let me just consider the whole subject of miracles. The miracle of manna was an incredible event. We've all heard it probably from the earliest stage on in our Christian walk. Maybe even as little children you heard about that great miracle. But I'm going to go on record as saying something today you probably have never heard. I believe it was not necessarily God's best act for Israel. We're going to see miracles, and we see them in our faith journey. But listen, people can see miracles and still not believe in God. Jesus said this himself in Matthew eleven twenty one. 21, a warning. He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Some people say, you know, if I could see it, then I'd believe it. Well, that's not belief. From the Good News Translation, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The Israel that God rescued from Egypt lived in this, think of it, in this miraculous environment of God. What was that environment? It was a cloud, uh, uh, a cloud by day, It was a pillar of fire by night. Think of that. You remember the flannel graph. It was manna every morning. Their clothes and shoes never wore out. Yet here they are, wandering in the desert. And in Deuteronomy, excuse me, 29.5, here's what God said. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert... Your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. I don't just want to talk this morning about miracles. I want to talk about more than miracles. There's more to God than miraculous signs. As I said before, we expect to see them. If you're a Christian, you ought to expect to see God do miracles. 
You ought to presume that he's going to do miracles. But you can't sit around all day, 24-7, just waiting or hoping to see the next miracle, not knowing where it's coming from or how it's going to affect you. So more importantly is obedience to the Word of God. That must be first. Obedience to the Word of God in your lifestyle, in your marriage, in your relationship, in your job, in your career, whatever it might be. So let's talk about breaking what I call the poverty thinking. For 40 years, now in case you haven't studied much history, that's a, that's a generation. For 40 years, I've been preaching this for over 40 years, and I still can't get over this story. I can't absorb this. For 40 years, a whole generation of people had lived in God's good and not really his best. Be careful. We, too, have for a long time, probably many of us, lived on God's good, and maybe you're there now, but you're not living in God's best. The day you break the manna mentality and start to eat from the fruit of the land, you're going to see giants in your life fall. You're going to see territory conquered. You're going to see land possessed for God that has never been possessed before. And then we'll truly be, not manna Christians, but promised land Canaan Christians. But we have to stop eating manna to become promised land or Canaan Christians. What you eating? What you eating? The characteristics of Canaan Christians are that they leave the manna, they start eating the produce or the fruit of God's promised land, they're prepared to pay the price of obedience, they have the courage to do it, and they step out of their comfort zone and begin to eat the food of faith. Wow. You can read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, and keep reading the Bible. The word that brings faith doesn't come from a five-minute daily devotion. And by the way, don't, I'm on record here, I'm not against five-minute daily devotions. They have their place. They're good. If you do it, do not stop doing it. It can come from them, but it's not as effective or as dead sure that it will. A man, a Christian, lives on that kind of what I call an inadequate diet. If we want to be a Canaan Christian, we have to make demands on ourselves to appropriate the Word of God into our lives. So do we read the Bible for information or for revelation? You see, information will never change you. Never. But revelation will. In Romans ten seventeen. We read, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And by the way, word of God, the word word in that verse is the word rhema. It's a Greek word. It's not the word logos, which often is the word for word. This rhema word means a living, God-spoken word that jumps out at you when you're seeking revelation from God. You say, I want a revelation from God. You need to be seeking a revelation from God. You need to be in his word. You need to be open to what he's teaching you. And you need to be ready to obey what he tells you. 
Unfortunately, many Christians in America, I'm just going to pick on us as part of the Western culture, are full of Bible information which can lead to a very religious spirit. They have the Bible information spirit rather than revelation, which leads to growth, to revival, and to kingdom living, and they are still manna Christians. What are you eating? Now, what about the manna? All kinds of theories about what it was, what it was like, what it is. What it, some say, oh, it was a heavenly food. Listen, man, if I eat this in heaven, I'm going to camp somewhere else. This was a fine, all we know, it was a fine white flake of some kind, and it was God's provision. Think of this, get a hold of this, for a whole nation while they're living in the desert. The manna fell every morning, six days a week for 40 years. You can work that out. Now that's a faithful God, amen? Every morning, six days a week for 40 years. Never I want you to consider this immense breakfast buffet. To feed the whole nation required approximately 4,500 tons of manna every day. That's the equivalent to 10 trains, each pulling 30 cars every morning. And on Friday, of course, there were 20 trains. Since twice the amount fell, on Friday, because none came on the Sabbath. Now, miraculous and wonderful as the whole manna miracle is, once again, in my humble opinion, I'm going to share with you, it wasn't even in God's plan. It was a great miracle. How can you say that? Look, here's what God's original plan was. Here's what God's original plan was. To bring Israel out of Egypt to march them for 10 days. Everybody say 10 days. ten days. How long was that trip going to be? See, so they took a shortcut. And it only took them 40 years. Don't laugh at the Israelites. Some of you have been on that same shortcut. Some of you are probably still looking for manna every day. The idea was to march them for 10 days days, not 40 years, enter the promised land, eat the fruit of Canaan, the food of faith. Yet I want you to consider something. This miracle, this miracle was not in God's original plan. This was not plan A. It was his good plan. It was a miracle, of course, to the Israelites, but it was not his best. Here's why. Because the people did not follow his intended plan. Manna speaks clearly, and it does. It's a tremendous uh, testimony of the wonderful grace and love and provision of our God. Whether you're obeying him or whether you decide you'll go your own way. Hello? Hello? As long as the people ate manna, 
It meant Israel was in the desert. They meant Israel was in bondage. It meant Israel was in captivity. It meant Israel was going around and around and around and around and around in circles over and over and over, never any threat to any of God's enemies. The moment they stopped eating manna and started eating the produce of the land, the enemy was shaking in their boots. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, I said we'd come back. Look how the chapter starts. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So what really is a man a Christian? Because a man a Christian is a Christian, right, Pastor Bob? Yes. A man a Christian is saved, right? Yes. A man a Christian is not going to suffer eternal punishment. No, no. God's grace is still available. Aren't you glad? Let's hear it from all you man of Christians. Aren't you glad? Okay, good. But, but if I said all you communists, aren't you glad? You'd, I'd get a roaring amen. Oh, dear. But through, but through choice, men of Christians live lives of carnality. The flesh, the spirit, flesh always wins out. The flesh, the spirit, the flesh wins out. No. Just can't, just can't give in to the work of the spirit. They choose a lifestyle that is uncommitted, really stands for nothing, believes everything and everyone, lacks the vital gift of, of discernment, blames others for their failures, and chooses to just get by. What you eating? What you eating? Good news for you. If you recognize that you are a man, a Christian, you can do something about it. Today, don't blame anyone for your spiritual condition. Oh, you just don't know, Bob. I mean, so-and-so hurt me, yeah, and, and I, just, I can't get over that. Oh, and furthermore, Bob, uh, um, I was upset about the thing you did. Or more so, the thing, that thing you said. Oh. I don't really have a response to that other than, come on, we've all got to grow up. We, you and I, no one else, have got to work out our own salvation. Paul said in Philippians 2.12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't stay in your house forever because someone's hurt your feelings. Come on out and get hurt again. Come on out and be vulnerable again. Come on out and show how strong you really are, or better still, how strong your God really is. Oh, somebody hurt my feelings. I'm not going on. I'm not. That's too bad. Put this in your notes. Maturity is the ability to ignore the insult. 
Yeah, but you know, not want him to be steady with him. Maturity is the ability to ignore the insult. I have never been so. Maturity is the ability to ignore the insult. Don't turn against the Bible. Don't turn against prayer. Don't turn against worship. Don't turn against fellow Christians. Or don't turn against the church at large. We all have to take responsibility for our own lives. Yeah, but he insult you don't he is not your responsibility. Yeah, but you don't know what she said. She is not your responsibility. Let me tell you who your responsibility is. You. And I will add this, and Bible will the Bible will bear me out here. That you have to work at this. In Ephesians 4. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Unity in the church? Whoever heard of that? Unity in the family? Whoever heard of that? These are not requests from the throne of God. They are God's commands. These are not suggestions. These are commands of Scripture. In the 133rd Psalm, famous Psalm, we read the words, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's so precious. It's like, it's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Quite a picture. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Psalm 133, 1-3. Still, still, Some folks choose to stay in the poor old me's. And although some folks are not non-believers, a lot of them are Christian believers, but poor old me, I feel an Eeyore coming on. If you haven't seen the movie, go to it this afternoon. It'll do your heart good. There's 101 lessons there that everybody needs, especially Christians. God wants you to stop eating manna. I'm going to tell you in a minute why. God wants you to stop living in the survival mode. The Lord wants you to start eating faith food. Man, we waste so many years of our lives just around and around and around and around and around, like the Israelites, going nowhere, taking 40 years on a 10-day journey. Always ending up at the base of the mountain, the same place. Always coming back to the desert in the same place. Always saying, poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. Hello, what you eating? Hmm? 
God doesn't want you to eat survival food. How you doing, Christian friend? Oh, I'm getting by. Oh, way to go. You've just inoculated me with some victory that I never had in my life. <laughs> How's everything going? Pretty good considering the circumstances. How's things? Oh, surviving. God doesn't want you to be a survivor. He wants you to start eating faith food so you can take cities, so you can influence people for Jesus, so you can get your mind off yourself and on other people who are far more important than you and me in our little circles. He wants you to possess the land for Jesus' sake. He wants you to take the good news to the ends of the earth, including your own country, your own city, your own town, your own community. Manna is maintenance-only food. Manna was incredible. It was an incredible abundance. 4,500 tons a day. It was still only maintenance food. What did it do? It just kept Israel alive in the desert, listen to this, one day at a time. That's the best it could do. That's maintenance food. See, if we don't get it, we die. But uh, if we could just get one more day of it. Ah, yep. For how many years? Say 40 years. Everybody say 40 years. 40 years. You getting the seriousness of that? It wasn't for a week. It wasn't even for a month. 40 Years. Some Christians read their Bibles. I would never discourage you from doing that. Take their daily notes. And they're just happy. Ah, I'm saved. Hallelujah. I'm saved. Hallelujah. Ah, hallelujah. I'm with you. But I want to ask you a question. Is that it? I mean, there's no desire to get inside the Word of God in order to get the real food from it, the faith food obtained from meditating on this eternal Word and digging into this Word and hearing God speak to you. Listen, the manna did seem to be in great abundance. Not only seemed to be, it was. When you went out every morning, there was enough for yourself and for no one else. Exodus 16 describes it very well. In verse 16, it says, An omer for each person you have in your tent. In verse 18, it says, Each one gathered as much as he needed. Let me explain that. I want you to note that there was no manna left over from each gathering. So you couldn't share the leftovers with anyone else. Because there were none. This was not the feeding of the 5,000. A man, a Christian, is concerned only with maintenance. There are, two pro, there are two pronouns that the man a Christian lives by. Me and mine. Hmm. There was no manna left over to share. There was none left over to seed. All it did was see 
see you through the day. It lasted for the day. On the following morning, listen to this pretty picture. Any unused or manna that had not been picked up stank really bad and had all kinds of worms in it. That's biblical. The Bible's there. You can read it yourself. There was, are you hearing me? There was no surplus. It met your body's need for today, only keeping you alive until the following day. Survival food, maintenance food, one day food. Now here's what you've been waiting to hear. Because up to now, you've never heard any of this before, most likely. I love these obscure texts, don't you? Don't you? And then all of a sudden, as you dig into them and delve deeper, you, you, wow, wow. So look at this. Manna mentality can be broken. Now you can get excited. God's plan is, uh, is here's, this is not God's plan. Oh, we got enough, just enough. That's not God's plan. God's plan is, you shall have life, and you shall have it more abundantly. He didn't even say abundantly. He said more, whatever that means, more abundantly. I guess more abundantly than abundant. That beats just enough, amen? You like steak? Yeah, well, more steak is good, but more abundantly is even better. It's, it's way better than, oh, just enough. You got enough? Oh, I got just enough when you're dying for another two pounds. Yeah? God says this in Luke 6. He says, given and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Luke 6, 38. This, my friends, is God's plan. This, my friends, is plan A. This is his best. Not just enough. His best is abundance. Manna was only for you. Nobody else got blessed by it. You didn't get blessed by by my getting manna. You get blessed getting your own Manna, and that was it. They had to gather for themselves, and it says in Scripture, and then they had to look out for themselves, and they had to feed themselves, and they had to just wait and hope that the next day this would happen again, and maybe this will be over, and boy, there maybe came true. Boy, I bet they were excited 40 years later. You know the saddest part of that story? That's a whole generation of people gone. Now, what you eating? What you been eating? You say, Bob, I've never even thought about this. I've got I to gotta think about this. I've, I've got to process. That's fine. And that's why I keep asking you the question, because I want you to really think about this. Some Christians kind of live Like this, the man is only for me. No one else is going to get blessed by it. I got to go get up myself, and I got to look out and and look after myself. 
I'm going to make this statement again because you may have missed it. Some Christians live just like that. And I'm going to add to it. We've all been there at one point or another in our lives. I'm guessing, but I think I'm pretty accurate there. This is good for me. Woo-hoo! This is great. Maybe some of us are there right now. Hey, what more do you want, big guy? I come to church on Sunday once in a while. I show up so you don't forget who I am. I've tipped my hat to God a few times. He knows I'm still here. How many of us have reached the place of, oh, it's good enough, as long as we get by. Get by. God doesn't want us to eat maintenance food. He wants us to eat abundant food. Not just for ourselves, but receiving a whole lot more which can be freely given away. So we each have to break the manna mentality of just surviving. And we, as a church, even in this body, are going to grow. And I predict we're going to take areas that belong to us. We're going to take precious lives that belong to us through Jesus Christ. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, saves all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You say, how, how, how do I, not somebody else, how, how do I break the manna lifestyle of maintenance and survival? You will know you're starting to do that when you begin to believe that you can be a channel of blessing for someone else. I don't know who the someone is, and I would doubt that you even know. That's not what I'm talking about is to identify personalities. I'm talking about you totally leaving the manna mentality and watching God work. He'll show you things you never dreamed of. Manna mentality says, enough for me, that's all. Things like, I hear this too, and I might as well hit this on manna mentality. Uh, I, you know, pastor, I'd love to, I want to support the church, but I just can't do that tithe thing. I can't tithe, because I've only got enough money to go around right now just to live on and that's it for now can i tell you something else as long as you have that and that's your motivation and that's how you live you'll always be like this unless or until you break the manna mentality and then you start thinking oh how can i be a blessing to somebody else And all of a sudden, your heart opens up, your mind opens up, your hands open up, your wallet opens up, your your thinking opens up. Oh, I I can't do anything for God. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, well, why can't you? Well, I still need 47 more counseling sessions to set me free. So I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't possibly think of helping to meet somebody else's needs. I can't even get my own needs met. You start to give, and I'll stake my life on it, standing before you right now. You will receive the blessing because Scripture promises it. God is not a liar. God is a debtor to no man. Amen? I 
I could tell you some personal stories on this subject that would, I think, convince you, but I'll leave that for another day. I can't pray, Pastor. I can't pray for anyone. Okay, well, somebody just lead us in prayer. And the place, the, the place, whether it's a small group of six or eight people, or whether it's 50 people, the whole place just goes dead silent in a bunch of Christians. I've been a Christian for over 60 years, and nobody has been able to explain that to me yet. I mean, they've tried. They've got all kinds of excuses, but nobody's really been able to explain that to me. Oh, Pastor, I couldn't pray for anyone else because, you know, I've got problems of my own. I've got problems right in my own life. Well, hop on the wagon, honey. There isn't one of us that isn't in that same boat. And until you put others first, I hope you're getting the principle here, you will always have your feast of manna and you need today to start sorting out your poverty. I want to throw part of my challenge out to you with a moving real life event that took place a number of years ago when Mother Teresa came to Great Britain for a visit. And on that visit, she went to a senior's home, then they call them old people's home, but since so many of us are old now, we're offended by that. We, we don't think we're getting old, so now we call it seniors. And the high school fourth-year people are mad because they're the seniors. And so it's, it's really, so you, what is it? It's an old people's home. It's where old people live. <laughs> when Mother Teresa arrived, she went to one big very large room, and this room, in that room, were the oldest people in the facility, and they were all sitting there in their armchairs, in their wheelchairs, whatever, and what shocked Mother Teresa was that they all had their chairs <laughs> facing the entrance to their room. She was so inquisitive about this, curious about this, that she asked those in charge later, those who had arranged the chairs, why they had arranged them that way. And she was told this answer because the old people themselves had requested it. And she said, but why? And they said because they constantly hoped that someone they loved would come through the door to visit them. Do you know how many people in Hancock County, Maine, are living that as a reality? Do you? Do you know that we are the oldest state in the Union? Hey, those of us that are white from here up, we didn't die it this morning. <laughs> and thank God, I'm telling you, for a church that's growing in size like we are, we have a phenomenal number of senior adults. 
I call them golden saints. Without the gold. We have an unbelievable number of young families and little squirts going all around here and there. If you don't believe that, step into one of the rooms on the other sides of the building. Be careful, though. Put your helmet on. What about you? What about you? Would you be willing to meet these people's need for that love and that care that they're so desirous of? This is what we're called to do, and this is what we're called to be in this world. People who look for needs to meet. We don't look for needs to just show up, and then we'll go into action and try to react to them. We're supposed to be people who are looking for needs that we can meet and seeking opportunity to give love to those who are desperate to receive it. We have people in this church, and we have had over the years, who I am absolutely convinced they must be here on a Sunday or so many Sundays a month or whatever, and the reason they come is the only place anyone ever expresses love or gives them a hug. And you say, well, that's a good thing, and when they come, that's what we should do. Amen but we should also be out there seeking these people. This is one day and one hour, if you will, a week. What about the other 167? We're going to start working on that theme. So get ready. I contend, this is worthy of note. It's not on the screen. I contend, dear people, that the vast majority of Christians would never need counseling if they just obeyed the word of God. I didn't expect any more response in that, so that's fine. You don't have to say it again. But I'm going to say it again. I believe, I contend with my whole heart, that the vast majority of Christians would never need counseling if they obeyed the word of God. I don't think a week goes by, but I hear someone say, well, what we really need here, Ellsworth-Hancock region, uh, we really need a, a good Christian counselor. What we really need is for Christians to obey the Word of God. Yes, we need some counseling now and, and then. Yes, we need some, some special help for some people who have just gone off the rails. Absolutely, I'm not putting that down. But I'm saying, if we could just get Christians to get in it, to, to just absorb it, to just hear it, to just obey it, to just live it. We could all, we could all, but at least decrease, if not completely do away, with the need for all this counseling. What we need to cry out today, if we're still on the manna, is, Lord, help me be a channel of blessing to others so you become, at that point, when you say that in your heart and mean it, you become a giver, not a getter. You're not in this for what you can get. You're in this for what you can give. And I remind you, as we've been reminding you for all these years, any of you that have, have absorbed this teaching and preaching over the years, survived it, we're not here for you. We're here for them. We're here for a community of lost souls. 
And in order to be effective, you need to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit of God. You need to have his love coming through you. You meet, need to be able to make wise choices. You need, meet, need to uh, realize that you can become a chosen channel of blessing if you'll just do one thing. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, if you'll just go. Those are the first two letters of the gospel. Matthew 28, 19, therefore, everybody say go. Therefore, Thank you. Those are the words of Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to... Ah, ah, ah. Here's the answer to the counseling. And teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, what? I'll be with you to the end of the age. There's the key right there in a nutshell. Two verses. Now, I want to just say a, a last couple of things. I haven't said this in public for a long time. But when I say finally, the people here know that it means absolutely nothing. Manna, manna is not food for survivors. To go into Canaan meant that a whole generation had to come to the point of knowing to stop eating manna means to start to fight. But it also means starting to take possession of the wonderful promises of God. This is for the present day generation. I'm going to just put it this way. What's left of my generation? Not the next one. Not the next one. Not the one after that. Today's generation. We don't know how long we have to get this jo job done. So let's start eating of the fruit of the land. What you eating? What you eating? Now here's a challenge practically for you as an individual, for you if you're a manna Christian, for you if you're still eating the manna, and for this church body as a whole. Number one, seek opportunities to become a channel of blessing. Don't sit in your armchair and wait for them to come. Seek opportunities. Remember the wor first word Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19? Go. Therefore, go. And then be secondly, become a giver. Not seeking only to receive just so you can get, but become a giver. And then start sowing out of your poverty. Not financial poverty. It's not what I'm talking. I'm talking your spiritual poverty. Because all the rest of this stuff starts getting right once you get that right. And then I want you to commit. Once you commit to leaving the manna, there's no going back. There wasn't for the Israelites. There was no more manna after they started eating the good food. Hmm? They had to get up and move. They had to fight for territory. They had to keep moving forward. They'd already miss one whole generation. Church, are we going to do that? Are we going to sit around and miss a whole generation? Can't afford to do that. So we commit. And I say to know my God will lead to discernment. That's what commitment means. To know him. Really know him. Really embrace him. Really understand him.
Really be intimate with him. Really learn of him. To know him. To know him will lead you to discernment. Discernment that makes something happen. The question is, what do I stand for? The question for you is the same question for me. What do I stand for? What do I stand for in, 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 in my marriage? What do I stand for in my family? What do I stand for in my church? What do I stand for in my job? In my relationships? And in my community? Man a Christian? Or Canaan Christian? What you eating? What you eating? The prophet Zephaniah said this in chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah 3, 17. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. Aren't those beautiful words? With his love. He will calm all your fears. You fearful today? You living in fear today? With his love, he will calm all your fears. And he will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Let's listen to this message in song.
up to the sky, I can hear you singing over me through the fire in the flood. I know that I am loved, I can hear you.